Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Regina, and I too would like to welcome everyone to this program today, What's New in Diagnostic Technologies for People Living with Small Cell Lung Cancer, which is part two of Living with Small Cell Lung Cancer. So some of you are on part one, and if you weren't, you'll be learning new things in part two, and all of you will be learning new things. Um, and today's program is done in partnership with the Longevity Foundation, and you'll be hearing more about the wonderful work that they do um, specific to people living with lung cancer. Today's program, um, Life with Small Cell Lung Cancer Connect Education Workshop Series was funded in part by Jazz Pharmaceuticals, Inc., and I really want to thank them for their support of this program. Now, we have um, about 150 people on the call today, so that's a fantastic number of people. And we also have people from countries, um, and actually from the United States, the 150 um, from the United States are from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have international participants from Canada, Egypt, Iraq, Spain, Mauritius, Nigeria, and the United Kingdom. So it is a global call as well. And it's a credit to each of you that you've chosen to spend the next hour with us. And now it's my pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Misty Shields. And Dr. Shields is Assistant Professor of Clinical Medicine, Department of Medicine, Division of Hematology and Oncology, Indiana University School of Medicine, Associate Member Experimental and Developmental Therapeutics, Indiana University, Melvin and Brent Simon Comprehensive Cancer Center. And Dr. Shields will be addressing an overview uh, and definition of diagnostic technologies for small cell lung cancer, how diagnostic technologies work, examples of how diagnostic technologies inform the treatment of small cell lung cancer, and talking with your healthcare team about the most current treatment choices for small cell lung cancer and quality of life issues. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Shields. Thank you, Dr. Messner, and, and thank you to the Cancer Care Connect Workshop and Longevity for the opportunity to speak today to you all, and, and it's my honor to, to be here. And, uh, be on this global call. Um, so first of all, um, you know, small cell lung cancer um, is a, a form of lung cancer that is treatable at any stage and has many treatment options. Um, to be able to inform us of um, the, what type of lung cancer this is and maybe where this lung cancer may be, whether it's in the chest or outside of the chest, requires um, information from technologies uh, to be able to diagnose um, this form of lung cancer known as small cell as well as to complete staging for, um, for any cancer diagnosis. And so um, the first topic is knowing what diagnostic technologies are available and appropriate for small cell lung cancer. So you've probably heard a lot of these technologies or, or terms, whether it's 
um, with your loved one or, or family mem another family member or yourself um, as you've been um, going through a journey with cancer or with cancer with a loved one. First, I'd like to introduce uh, the, the term chest X-ray, which is um, an X-ray or a plain um, radiograph uh, film, which is of the chest or any other, um, you know, parts of our body that can be obtained uh, with other plain X-rays. And so this is particularly looking at the chest, meaning the left lung and right lung, the center of the chest, which is known as the mediastinum, as well as the heart is, um, is uh, located there looking at the lungs, any fluid on the lungs, looking at the bones, um, as well as uh, the, the ribs there. And so the chest x-ray may have been done um, initially if you had, you or your loved one had shortness of breath and they got a chest x-ray. Those are um, uh, nice and, and have high utility because they can be quickly done in an outpatient setting or an ER um, and they can be read pretty quickly. Um, the limitation of the chest x-ray is that it doesn't give us the high resolution we need to be able to see um, features in the lungs in full detail. And so you will see that your doctor or your team will order then another test called a CT scan or a CAT scan you may hear. This is a test that is done um, that is performed in something that looks almost like a a circle or a donut, and um, it can be performed um, over the course of a, a few seconds to a few minutes. Um, it's the technology that um, you um, sit uh, down, you know, onto the, the table, um, you're uh, placed in the position, uh, the, the images are captured, um, and um, then you are um, released uh, and go back to either clinic or back home. These CAT scans can be done with or without intravenous or IV contrast. Um, and your doctor or your team will decide whether um, that is right for you based on any other diseases or you know, things like kidney disease or any allergies to contrast if that's appropriate for you. CAT scans um, use um, a low dose of radiation um, to look at the um, uh, fine details of the lungs and can look at lymph nodes. They can look at the lungs as well as the bones, um, looking for any fluid. And this can be very helpful to know exactly the particulars and higher resolution of um, exactly potentially where any nodules or, or masses or cancer may be. An additional test that goes with that um, is something called a PET scan, P-E-T, the positron emission technology. This is a type of um, a, sort of a form of a CT scan that then uses a second contrast that is radio labeled. It's given injected into the, the veins and some time is um, allowed and then scans are, looked, are, are taken to look for the uptake or the activity of a radio labeled sugar. That goes to any areas that are active but not necessarily cancer. It can be areas of inflammation or infection and so you know, really looking to your team to help inform interpreting those results. The next technology is something called an MRI um, or magnetic resonance imaging. This is of the brain. Typically, CT scans can alternatively be done of the, of the brain, but the gold standard is to really use MRI technology. This it does not include any radiation. This is using 
um, information on um, the polarity of water. It's very interesting, but looking at magnetic resonance with using a, a large magnet to look at areas in the brain. And this can be helpful for informing whether there's any abnormalities in the brain that could be concerning for cancer potentially in the brain. Another technology that's used for diagnosis is a biopsy. And so, um, you know, these biopsies can be performed um, locally with sedation or without sedation with anesthesia, that's local injection, injections, um, or it can be done um, through bronchoscopies, um, which is a procedure where um, you uh, undergo anesthesia um, and a scope is um, passed into the lungs and can look at the lymph nodes or any masses in the lungs for biopsy or visual evaluation. There's also other technologies, things like um, procedures such as fluorocentesis, uh, which is utilizing a catheter to enter the space between the chest, the ribs, and the lungs, which may hold fluid, and that fluid may include cancer, or it may not. And so evaluating that, and they can look at it under the microscope. Um, so these, all these technologies um, can comprehensively inform and evaluate how to uh, inform treatment. It helps with understanding the staging of where your cancer may be. Um, what organs may be involved, but also important for monitoring response to treatment. You're going to listen to some other talks later on in this workshop uh, about treatment opportunities. Um, so it is important to talk to your team about getting the most current treatments. Here in the U.S., we have what's called the NCCN guidelines, which is our National Comprehensive Care Network guidelines. These are national guidelines of how we, um, all the experts have consensus and agree for the most up-to-date uh, recommendations among experts who treat uh, lung cancer and particularly small cell lung cancer. It's important to know to ask, always ask about clinical trials. So when we think about clinical trials, sometimes we um, think about being something like a guinea pig, and really that's just not true. Um, clinical trials are an opportunity for us to improve on the standard of care that we are already doing. And so you will never be offered inferior care. You, that would be unethical and is not uh, permitted in the scientific community. So you always want to ask um, about clinical trials and if there's any opportunities along any forks in the, in the road if there's a time where your cancer may have come back or you were diagnosed or the treatment didn't work, pause and ask your team about trial options. Another part of this um, workshop is to you know, really focus also on quality of life. This is a big parameter that I look at in my patients um, and making sure that we focus on all the other parameters of their cancer-related care. Make sure that you ask um, your team about considering a referral to palliative care early. Palliative care uh, is, a, tech, is a, a team of doctors and, and staff that focus on cancer-related symptoms, help improve quality of life, help with pain or nausea. They can help clarify what matters most to you and what your goals of treatment are. 
and also ask um, for involvement of other services, things like social work. Also ask for nutrition or dietary, copay assistance, or any, any groups. And we'll be talking about this more. Um, so I think, you know, just to wrap up here for my section, you know, really looking at um, there's many technologies available for patients who are diagnosed or their families of patients with small cell lung cancer. Um, these help inform your treatments. Make sure you get the most up-to-date treatments. And make sure you speak up and ask uh, for support to make sure we really um, are aware of maintaining your quality of life as you go through your cancer journey. So thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Shields. That was uh, really outstanding and really set the stage for today's program. Just a stellar presentation. I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you so much. Our next speaker is uh, Dr. Brian Hennick, and Dr. Hennick is Director of Translational Research, Upper Aerodigestive Cancers in Medical Oncology, Associate Director, Experimental Therapeutics, Assistant Professor of Medicine, CUMC, Thoracic Oncology, Herbert Irving Comprehensive Cancer Center. And Dr. Hennick will be addressing understanding the FDA's accelerated approval program, how it increases your treatment options, diagnostic technologies, targeted therapies, and precision medicine, combination systemic treatment for metastatic small cell lung cancer, and clinical trials, how diagnostic technology research contributes contributes to treatment choices. It's my pleasure now to turn this program to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Hennick. Thank you so much, Dr. Messner, to Longevity, and to uh, my uh, co-panelists. Um, so kind of jumping right into uh, understanding the FDA's accelerated approval program and how this increases your treatment options, uh, this kind of speaks a little bit to something that Dr. Shields alluded to with clinical trials. So. In order for us to know whether any treatments are beneficial for any cancer, uh, we need to conduct clinical trials that range from the very first time that a, a medicine is, is being tested in people all the way up to uh, comparing that treatment to the current standard of care. And uh, the traditional path for us to approve new drugs for cancer treatment historically has been pretty drawn out because we've wanted to make sure that new drugs are safe, that they're dosed appropriately, that they're effective, and finally, that they're better than what's already out there. And so in order for us to really make sure that the appropriate trials need to be done, these trials take a long time. They require having a lot of patients uh, tested with these different treatments. And so uh, consequently, for conditions where there might be a particular uh, limitation in the number of treatments that are available for patients. The FDA has acknowledged that expanding access to these drugs earlier on in the process, while we're still verifying certain aspects uh, about the effectiveness and um, uh, comparative improvement of these drugs compared to the standard of care, could allow us to continue to learn about the drugs while patients might have an earlier chance to benefit. So one of the ways that the FDA went about um, expediting this was by instituting the accelerated approval program, which uh, allows for earlier approval of drugs that can treat serious conditions and that fill an unmet medical need based on what we call a surrogate endpoint. 
so the traditional uh, endpoints, the traditional um, things that we measure to figure out if a new drug is effective are things like how long does it take after you start the medicine for the cancer to start growing, or how long does a patient live after we start the medication. Those kinds of information are probably the most important things for, for us as, as doctors and, and for patients and caregivers to know, but it can take a long time for us to learn those things. And so a surrogate endpoint is a marker, such as a laboratory test, a radiographic image, a physical sign, or other measure that's thought to predict clinical benefit, but is not itself a measure of clinical benefit. So the use of an effective surrogate endpoint can considerably shorten the time that's required uh, before a, a final FDA approval is given over. Drug companies are still required to conduct studies to confirm the anticipated clinical benefit. So even uh, so if the confirmatory trial shows that the drug actually provides a clinical benefit, then the FDA grants traditional approval for the drug. If the confirmatory trial does not show that the drug provides clinical benefit, the FDA has regulatory procedures in place that could lead to removing the drug from the market. So this is basically a mechanism in between actually participating in a clinical trial and having a full approval of a drug. At the moment, an approved second-line treatment for metastatic small cell lung cancer is called lurbinectinin. This approval is based on data from a single arm study that was looking at many different tumor types that included small cell lung cancer. And it seemed to show that there was benefit from this treatment. It showed that uh, small cell lung cancers shrunk with the treatment. Currently, a phase three randomized study is enrolling to confirm how lurbinectidin performs compared to the previous standard of care treatment. And so uh, this is one example of an accelerated approval for small cell lung cancer. Um, getting into diagnostic technologies, targeted therapies, and precision medicine, uh, we know that diagnosing small cell lung cancer depends on seeing where the cancer is on scans and confirming what kind of cancer it is by a biopsy. Most people diagnosed with small cell lung cancer come in with some kind of symptom, like a cough, shortness of breath, chest pain. Sometimes these symptoms can arise from a part of the body that the cancer may have spread to, as opposed to where the cancer started. And typically, a CAT scan, like what Dr. Shields was alluding to, of the chest is done. And that might show an abnormal mass in the lungs or near the airways, and that prompts further testing. Um, Often we do a PET scan for patients with small cell lung cancer, which helps to visualize cancer growth activity in addition to what we typically see on a CAT scan. We usually do separate tests to check for cancer in the brain, like an MRI, again, as, as Dr. Shields had mentioned. And depending on where the cancer is thought to be, a biopsy is then needed to confirm, first of all, if it is cancer, and second of all, what kind of cancer it is. And this can be done usually by an interventional radiologist, a pulmonologist, or some other kind of specialist who performs biopsies depending on where the cancer is suspected. A pathologist then reviews the information from the biopsy to inform what kind of cancer it is. Sometimes it can be tricky to confirm if a cancer is small cell lung cancer, so having a true expert review the pathology can be helpful, and we'll hear more about this later on uh, in, in the panel discussion. 
Targeted therapies and precision medicine tend to refer to the idea of using measurable features of a cancer's biology to guide what treatment to give. While this is the standard of care for non-small cell lung cancers, there are not any approved targeted therapies for small cell lung cancer currently. Often we will do sequencing to learn more about what genes may be driving these cancers, and we are just beginning to do clinical trials that could lead us to new, more targeted approaches in small cell lung cancer. The mainstay of treatment for small cell lung cancer is the combination of chemotherapy drugs. So there are different modalities of treatments that we can give for a cancer. Uh, some of these are, are things you may have heard of, like surgery, where you cut the cancer out. That is less typically a treatment that we use in small cell lung cancer because it is often the case that after surgery, we find that the cancer continues to grow. Um, there are other kinds of treatments such as radiation, which focuses radiation beams on where the cancer is thought to be from, the, from CAT scans. And then there are systemic treatments, treatments that go throughout the bloodstream. Uh, these are either administered by pills, which is less common in small cell lung cancer, or by IV, like chemotherapy drugs. And the idea behind chemotherapy drugs is that these medications directly kill cells that divide uh, quickly. And so preferentially, it should kill cancer cells, but it can also hurt healthy cells in the body, and that accounts for some of the side effects that we see. Uh, another kind of systemic therapy that we use in the treatment of small cell lung cancer is called immunotherapy. And the idea behind immunotherapy is that uh, part of how cancer is able to grow and spread is by turning off cells from the immune system. And one of the ways that cancer can do this is by making a protein called PDL1 that binds to a marker on our T cells and turns them off. What we are talking about when we mention immunotherapy is a medication that blocks that interaction between the cancer cell and the immune cell, and effectively this releases the breaks on the immune system. So how do we use all these treatments? The mainstay of treatment, as I mentioned, is combining two chemotherapy drugs. One is a platinum, so either carboplatin or cisplatin, and another medicine called etoposide. Usually these two chemo drugs, at least one of them, is given over three days in a row, and that is repeated every three weeks. Combinations with chemotherapy depend on the stage of cancer and the goal or intent of treatment. For patients with limited stage small cell lung cancer, so confined to a radiation field, treating with a goal of eradicating the cancer can be attempted by combining chemotherapy and radiation to the cancer in the chest. There can be a role for radiation to the brain afterward to prevent brain metastases, which is a common problem for uh, people with this disease. And often it depends on a patient's fitness after this treatment, whether that's something that's considered. For metastatic or extensive stage or incurable small cell lung cancer, there's now convincing evidence that giving immune therapy, like I mentioned earlier, with chemotherapy can improve survival for some patients. In a small group of patients, immunotherapy activates the immune system against the cancer and can lead to a long benefit. Clinical trials, how diagnostic technology research contributes to treatment choices, 
we're always looking for new technologies to help us predict who's likely to have that benefit from the treatment that we're giving and who's less likely to benefit. When we don't know who, who will benefit, we can, when we know who will not benefit, we can then guide new treatments to new targets. For immune therapy, there are two main ways we've been able to predict benefit in general. One is by looking for the target of immune therapy, PDL1, on tumor cells using immunohistochemistry. That's a tool that's available in most pathology labs. Sequencing genes and measuring the burden of mutations in the tumor. The problem is that even though we can do these tests, neither of these methods has been particularly insightful for small cell lung cancer, and these tests are not required to predict for benefit from chemo and immunotherapy. Using tumor samples for new markers to guide treatment choices can be particularly challenging in small cell lung cancer when there may be large amounts of necrotic or dead tissue. So this is an area of ongoing work. There's an increasing recognition in the field that there may be subtypes of small cell lung cancer using information we've learned from sequencing DNA and RNA of tumors. And so based on this understanding, there are many new treatments that have been proposed to possibly provide benefit but at this time, no treatments have been approved based on this emerging understanding of small cell lung cancer. Dr. Messner, I'll turn it back to you. Hello. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Hennick. That was a superb presentation, just really excellent. And I know there'll be lots of questions for you during the Q&A, um, so people really have a, a further understanding of the whole accelerated approval process um, from the FDA. So thank you so much. And our next speaker is uh, Benjamin Swanson, and Dr. Swanson, Dr. Benjamin Swanson, and Dr. Swanson is associate professor of pathology and microbiology, surgical pathologist specializing in lung, head, and neck GI diseases, and University of Nebraska Medical Center. And Dr. Swanson will be addressing the role of the pathologist, the important contribution of the pathologist in the treatment of small cell lung cancer understanding diagnostic technologies and the benefits of combination therapy in the treatment of people living with small cell lung cancer. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Swanson. Thank you so much, Dr. Messner, and thank you to the Longevity Foundation as well as Cancer Care for uh, the invitation to speak here. So uh, first, to go over the role of the pathologist. So a pathologist is a medical doctor whose job it is to combine clinical information as well as examine tissues, often under the microscope, or to interpret laboratory tests to be able to arrive at a diagnosis, which will then guide uh, treatment for patients with uh, small cell lung cancer. So initially, I'm going to talk about four primary roles that a pathologist plays in uh, helping patients with small cell lung cancer. And that includes cytopathology, um, surgical pathology, which includes core needle biopsies and surgical resections, as well as molecular pathology. So cytopathology is uh, when a pathologist looks at tissue that is from a fluid. This is often tissues that are derived from either a lung mass um, lymph nodes, or perhaps thoracentesis, as Dr. Shields had mentioned. Um, and this technique is called fine needle aspiration. So a needle is attached to a syringe um, when a mass is identified by a radiologic method, and then this fluid is taken from either the lung mass or the lymph node. 
Um, the technology can be used for an immediate evaluation to make sure that there is sufficient tissue to come at a, a diagnosis, that information would be given back in real time while a patient is under anesthesia to either a pulmonologist or an interventional radiologist. Ultimately, this fluid that is tissue would be looked at under a microscope to help render a diagnosis of small cell cancer. Another significant role that a pathologist plays is in the examination of what's called a core needle biopsy. So one can think of it as a cylindrical uh, core of tissue that is together. It too is often from either the lung, perhaps from a lymph node, or if a cancer is spread to a different place. And likewise, um, a pathologist with expertise in surgical pathology will look at this tissue under a microscope to render a diagnosis of small cell cancer. As Dr. Hennick mentioned, um, when a small cell cancer is small and has, is of limited stage, sometimes a patient will undergo a surgery to remove the cancer. Uh, a pathologist then with uh, expertise in lung will assist in looking at the uh, lung or organ that was taken out, selecting tissues to be examined under the microscope, and ultimately the pathologist will determine, one, how big the tumor is, um, two, to what extent the tumor has spread, is it confined to the lung, is it spread to lymph nodes, et cetera, um, and three, if the margins or if all of the tumor is out. Um, the fourth area that pathology contributes to patient care in small cell lung cancer is in, within molecular pathology. So a molecular pathologist is someone with specialty training that looks at genes within a tumor, or what's also called the DNA and RNA. And there's changes that occur that are specific to uh, lung cancers, as including small cell lung cancer. So this pathologist will usually generate a report um, looking at for many mutations. Sometimes this is called next generation sequencing, and that's when a molecular pathologist looks at many genes, maybe 300 or 500 genes, to look for specific mutations within a cancer. And this uh, next generation sequencing report can then help inform an oncologist for targeted therapies when appropriate. So what are the, um, the important contributions that a pathologist can give um, in the management of small cell lung cancer? Well, first of all, it's confirming the diagnosis of cancer. Um, as Dr. Shields and Hennick had alluded to earlier, oftentimes patients after having presenting symptoms will then have radiological, radiological examinations where a mass is identified. But a pathology report and examination under a, under a microscope is often considered the gold standard to make a definitive diagnosis of cancer and specifically small cell lung cancer. It's also really important for a pathologist to exclude other cancers or other diagnoses. A pathologist does this by looking at the morphology. What I mean by that is what do the cells look like under the microscope? as well as stains or immunohistochemistry, which can help um, differentiate and distinguish a certain cancer from a different type of cancer. Um, it's very important that a pathologist um, be able to exclude or distinguish small cell lung cancer from things that could also be in the lung, such as a squamous cell carcinoma, an adenocarcinoma, or sometimes even lymph lymphomas, or a large cell neuroendocrine carcinoma. 
And it's important because the treatments are quite different between a small cell lung cancer and other tumors. Uh, moving on to diagnostic technologies that are used in pathology. So cytopathology, and what I talked about before, fine needle aspirations, as well as core needle biopsies and resections, all go through a similar process for a pathologist to be able to examine them. Tissues are fixed in formalin, embedded in wax, stained, and placed on glass slides to be looked at under a microscope. Um, immunohistochemistry is when a piece of tissue is placed on a glass slide. It is then soaked with an antibody that specifically detects a protein, and that antibody has a chemical that allows a brown color to detect it by eye. And lastly, um, molecular and next-generation sequencing. So as I said before, this is a way to look at genes that are mutated or changed in a cancer. And this technology amplifies those genes so that we can identify specific things that are different in the tumor cells. As Dr. Hennick had alluded to before, uh, we currently understand that there may be four major groups of small cell lung cancer, with uh, S small cell lung cancer subgroup A being the most common. We aren't sure yet how to specifically treat them, but we believe they will be um, targets for future uh, trials in patients. Another new emerging technology within pathology is what's called digital pathology. So similar to how radiology has digital images, pathology is undergoing the same revolution where the, the tissue on the slide is then analyzed by a camera and it is uploaded into uh, a patient's medical record. And this will allow both oncologists and other care providers, as well as patients, to be able to see the tissue that the pathologist used to arrive at the diagnosis. Lastly, I'd like to talk about the benefits of combination therapy for the treatment of small cell lung cancer. So as Dr. Hennick alluded to before, um, the the primary treatment for limited stage where it is not spread outside the chest is usually a combination therapy of a platinum with a toposide and radiation therapy, and this definitively improves survival in patients with small cell uh, lung cancer. Uh, for extensive disease, it's usually a combination of chemotherapy with either platinum and a toposide plus immune therapy so that we allow our immune cells to identify cancer cells as foreign and attack them. So again, um, I've talked about today the role of the pathologist um, in cytopathology, surgical pathology, and molecular pathology, as well as diagnostic technologies that a pathologist uses to uh, come to that diagnosis, as well as inform uh, clinical, tr clinical treatment. And lastly, um, the benefits of combination therapy in the treatment of small cell lung cancer. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Swanson. That was an outstanding presentation. Really, um, really fantastic. And I'm, I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. And a uh, very important topic and one that I think um, merits um, even more time uh, during the, the Q&A because I don't think a lot of people have a chance to actually speak with their pathologist or understand how important the pathologist is in informing their treatment choices. So. So thank you so much, and um, I look forward to the Q&A then. And our next speaker is, is, is uh, Ms. Ann Fish-Stiegel, um, and she is a nurse, and she is um, Senior Vice President of Patient Services and Healthcare Delivery 
Longevity Foundation, and she is a partner or in today's program, and many of our and all of our lung cancer programs we partner with Longevity Foundation, and she'll be discussing lung, Longevity Foundation's free programs and services, lung cancer helpline, as well as um, how to reach how to visit their website. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Ann Fish-Stiegel. Thank you, Carolyn, and it's certainly our pleasure to be a partner with Cancer Care on these lung cancer programs. We are a national nonprofit advocacy foundation that solely concentrates on the needs of anyone whose life has been affected by lung cancer. That includes current patients, survivors, as well as their care partners. We have a myriad of free resources. As uh, Dr. Messner mentioned, our website, which is longevity.org, um, is uh, sometimes, I have to say, there's so much information there, it may be even a little difficult to find what you're looking for, but certainly you can always contact the helpline at 844-360-5864, and that uh, will get you to our staff. Our staff is available during normal business hours on the East Coast, uh, five days, days a week. We have uh, partnerships, as we've said, with organizations like Cancer Care, where if we do not have the resource for things such as the uh, travel uh, arrangements or gas cards, things like that, um, we will definitely refer patients to organizations that do have those resources available. We have a whole list of social media sites for patients. You can join the Small Cell Facebook group or our care partner group. We also have very specific virtual support groups that we call our virtual meetups, and you will find the um, access to that registration on the Longevity website. Those are very dynamic. They meet um, on a regular basis, and I will say that patients get to know one another. It's a Zoom. So everyone sees each other's faces, and um, many important connections have been made through those virtual meetups. We also have available a mentor program where newly diagnosed patients can be connected with a survivor. Also, as you heard our physicians mention um, frequently about clinical trials, we all are very uh, high advocates of clinical trials, and if you are contemplating joining a clinical trial and you would like to know more about that, you can contact us and we will put you in contact with patients who are currently in a clinical trial and you can discuss their experiences. We have a section of our foundation that we call Breathe Deep. We sponsor many events walks and runs around the country, and we are also deeply uh, committed to early detection and screening and have an entire program that is around screening. So if you have family members or friends who are interested in learning more about screening, 
we have that on our website as well. We have um, we con conduct an annual survivors conference each year, which is also uh, the the registration for that is free, um, and we would love to see you all next May at our next um, annual event. That is really about the rundown in two minutes of what longevity has to offer, but I would encourage each of you to please reach out to our helpline where you can speak with a staff member in person or to explore the longevity.org website. Thank you, Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Siegel. That was really outstanding and just a wonderful, just a wonderful part organization, all her lung cancer organizations. And I think as you've said, uh, Longevity Foundation just offers so much and that we do encourage all of you who may not have contacted them to get in touch with them because they have resources that could be of help to you. And if they don't have the resource, they'll help you find the resource. So they just have so many things going on that it's just wonderful. So thank you. And our next speaker is Ms. Charlotte Ferenz. And Ms. Ferenz is an oncology social worker and she's our lung cancer coordinator at Cancer Care. And Ms. Ferenz will be addressing Cancer Care's free programs and services, and we'll be discussing how you can get help uh, from us both on the telephone and um, on our website. So I'm going to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Ferenz. Thank you, Dr. Mesner. I'm honored to be a part of this program today. Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization providing free professional support services and information to help people manage the financial, emotional, and educational challenges when it comes to a small cell lung cancer diagnosis and other diagnoses of cancer as well. Our comprehensive services include resource navigation, online support groups, educational workshops, publications, and sometimes financial or copayment assistance for medications. Our National Resource Navigation Service involves a short-term strengths-based approach to resource navigation, where specialists work with both patients and caregivers to find additional avenues of support, whether that's emotional or financial. Many of our services depend on where people live, but it can be helpful to utilize our social workers and specialists to see what services are available in your area. Cancer Care's national online support groups take place using a password-protected message board format and are led by professional oncology social workers who offer support and guidance. Groups are held for 15 weeks at a time. You can register on our website to join an online support group that's specific to lung cancer patients, lung cancer caregivers, as well as several other categories. We have young adult patient, young adult caregiver, women of color patient support groups, and several others. We also have on Cancer Care's website, cancercare.org, a wide array of reading materials and educational support. This includes past Connect education workshops, our coping circles, and a variety of other programs. As others mentioned on this call, navigating a lung cancer diagnosis is not something you have to go through alone. So by calling the Longevity Helpline in partnership with Cancer Care at 844 360-5864. Individuals have access to cancer care oncology social workers who can help connect you with more support. Building community, reaching out for help, it's not always easy, but it is important to maintain your support systems when dealing with a small cell lung cancer diagnosis. It's been lovely to be a part of this program today. Thanks for your attention. I'm turning back the program to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Renz. That was a wonderful uh, description 
of the services that we offer um, at Cancer Care in partnership with the Longevity Foundation and um, indeed all the different programs that we have. And um, so both Longevity Foundation and Cancer Care are go-to places for our participants on the call today. And now we have time for questions and answers. I'm going to ask uh, Regina to explain to all of you how queue up for questions. Regina. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, at this time, we will take questions from the web only. You may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. So a question um, for, um, for Dr. Shields. Is a chest x-ray alone sufficient to diagnose small cell lung cancer or other tests such as CAT scans, MRIs needed to make a definitive diagnosis? Um, so uh, to, to answer your question, it, whether a chest x-ray is sufficient um, for the diagnosis. So, um, you know, the initial testing may be a chest x-ray, um, but that would not be sufficient to completely stage, which is, um, you know, knowing exactly with high resolution where the cancer may be. So it might be enough to know maybe where a lung mass is to prompt a biopsy, but additional testing with scans, including CT scans of the chest, abdomen, and pelvis, um, as well as evaluation of the brain with MRI brain uh, would be necessary to um, get a baseline to evaluate where uh, any sites of disease or lung cancer may be. Excellent. Thank you so much. Um, and the um, question is up to Hennick. Why is it that small cell lung cancer often goes undiagnosed until it's more advanced? Are there any diagnostic technologies on the horizon that are aiming for early detection of small cell lung cancer? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I, I think to some extent, we don't know. Uh, I think one of the factors is that we think that when uh, a, a small cell lung cancer is growing, it tends to grow very quickly and aggressively. And so, whereas with other cancers where they might grow more slowly and you have lead time to detect it with the conventional um, tests that we do, with small cell lung cancer, uh, it may very well be that even if you were using the modalities that uh, Dr. Shields and I have mentioned, that you might not see it because it hasn't quite yet grown. As far as leveraging novel technologies to identify um, uh, uh, these cancers early, we're still in the very, very early stages and it's, it's not quite near clinical use. So I think there's still a lot that we still need to understand about this. Excellent, thank you. And a question for Dr. Swanson, um, is it theorized that a small cell lung cancer is typically caused by genetic mutations or epigenetic changes or both? And if you could explain to our participants uh, the terminology of genetic and epigenetic changes. Yeah, so um, most cancers are thought to arise from changes in genes, so I would say that um, Mutations in genes are what cause small cell lung cancer. Uh, the term epigenetics means changes to regions outside of that which is transcribed. So it could be, um, I'm going to get technical here, like a promoter. Uh, 
and that is an area in our DNA that is right before the part that's made into a protein. And if that, for instance, is methylated, um, that would turn off the gene. So um, we often see this type of methylation of certain genes, and that's what one example of epigenetics is. We classically think of mutations in genes, so genetic changes uh, causing cancers. Good question. Excellent. Thank you. Great answer. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, and the next question for Dr. Shields. If I have had lung nodules in the past, does this make me more susceptible to developing small cell lung cancer? Should I be getting regular CAT scans? Um, so, you know, um, we, there's actually a large proportion of, of, of people and patients around the world that have lung nodules that, you know, um, lung nodules are, are, are too small to be called a mass. Um, but they are a, a small consolidation that's seen on imaging, like um, a, a CT chest scan, you know, a CAT scan. Um, lung nodules can occur for many, many reasons, including um, endemic fungus. Um, so, you know, I'm in the Midwest. There's quite a few um, fungal um, funguses that live in the soil and in, in the environment and nature, and those can um, can cause small lung nodules that um, are not cancer, um, but are something that can be picked up on imaging. And so not necessarily all nodules are cancer, but I do encourage you to speak either with your primary care or if you have an oncologist or a pulmonologist, speak with them about what the appropriate um, monitoring and screening of those would be if you've had any biopsies, you know, um, what the appropriate time frame is for your personal case. Um, so I would really encourage you to, to, to speak with your doctor about it um, because not all nodules are cancer um, and not all cancers we can catch early on a nodule, sometimes even with small cells, as mentioned, um, you know, uh, with, with Dr. Hennick is that you know, it, it, it uh, can be growing quickly. So you may have had a lung screening CT and didn't see anything. And then maybe a few months later, they saw something. So it, it may not necessarily arise from something that was picked up, um, but all nodules should at least have a plan and action of monitoring uh, that you should check with your doctor about. Excellent, thank you. And a question for Dr. Hennick. Um, can you touch upon immunotherapy for small cell lung cancer? Any promising clinical trials pursuing immunotherapy for small cell lung cancer at the moment? Yeah, it's, it's a very good question because really the first advance that we've seen in the treatment of metastatic small cell lung cancer for the last few decades was incorporating immune checkpoint blockers or immunotherapy uh, with chemotherapy for treatment of patients who have a new diagnosis of metastatic disease. Um, the problem is that even though overall we saw a survival advantage to adding immunotherapy, what this really amounted to was a small group of patients who really got the benefit, and we don't really know how to identify those patients up front. Um, there's been some work looking at 
whether some of these uh, newly defined subgroups might help us to better identify which are the patients who are likely to already get that benefit from the approved immune therapy for small cell, but that's still an area that we don't understand very well. As far as next directions for immune therapy, it's been a little bit disappointing so far that many studies where there has been promising early data about a drug that was looking like it was going to be effective uh, as a next immune therapy treatment for small cell lung cancer didn't really pan out uh, in randomized studies. So I think the jury is still out on exactly what the best new target's gonna be for immune therapy and which patients are most likely to benefit. Uh, but there's a lot of work going into this space uh, currently. Well, thank you so much. That's an excellent answer. Thank you so much and great question. Thank you. Um, and um, for Dr. Swanson, is surgery needed for a biopsy? Uh, no, surgery is not needed for a biopsy. Um, it can be, biopsies can be performed um, depending on the location of the mass by a pulmonologist or an interventional radiologist, um, usually with some sedation or local anesthesia, but not surgery per se by a surgeon. Good question. And um, for Dr. Shields, could you discuss the combination treatment of topo TCAN and um, B-E-R-Z-O-S-E-R-T-I-B? Can you repeat that last? You said topo TCAN and what was the other? And B-E-R-Z-O-S-E-R-T-I-B. Um, so, um, you know, I think there's a lot of, um, there's over 200 active recruiting trials for small cell right now in terms of um, trying to improve the standard of care that we already um, are doing for patients with small cell. Um, I am not familiar of using this regimen myself. Um, Topotecan, um, with, uh, sounds like Bezacertum, um, so um, Topotecan has um, was uh, approved um, a few decades ago for um, relapsed or refractory small cell, meaning small cells that either came back after treatment or um, to fail to go away with first-line treatment. Um, it is a, a regimen that's um, intravenous and given consecutive days over the course of a week. Um, and, um, you know, there are trials looking at using agents like oral drugs that can target certain um, receptors on the outside of cells to improve um, response to therapy. And so I believe this is one of the ones that is being actively looked at. Um, and so how do we improve second line or third line or even first line therapies? Um, and so... I think the jury is still out on how do we improve these, um, you know, also making sure they're safe while still efficacious. Thank you. Thanks. And I, um, uh, I want to thank all of our speakers and our participants. I'm going to ask our speakers to really provide just a takeaway from today's program. So starting with Dr. Shields and Dr. Hennick, Dr. Swanson, Miss um, um, Fish-Stagel, and Ms. Ferenz. So if you want to go first, um, Dr. Shields. Yes, yes, absolutely. Thank you, um, Dr. Mansner and uh, Cancer Care, as well as the Longevity Foundation for the opportunity to speak with you all today on a global call. Um, I think that, you know, um, living with 
small cell and cancer or having a, a loved one, I, um, you know, I, I want you to all always to have hope and to know that there are treatments available and support um, from many communities as well as your um, cancer care team at your um, institution or um, center. So know that there are diagnostic technologies that help us to better understand um, and clarify um, what the um, diagnosis is, whether it is small cell lung cancer and, and where um, the cancer may be. Um, these also help with monitoring on how well treatment is going in addition to also your examinations and labs and visits with your doctor and team. Um, it's always important to talk to your team about um, the most current treatments, what are the NCCN guidelines, what are the most um, up-to-date options as well as trials available. Um, and, you know, don't be scared to ask for a second opinion from another, uh, you know, institution or colleague um, for your care and always ask for help in terms of any other support uh, for you or your family, whether that's social work, nutrition, and also ask for early palliative care to be in, um, to help with addressing those symptoms that may be related to your cancer. Um, and so hopefully, um, I know I've learned some things here today, so hopefully you all have as well. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Shields. Thank you. And Dr. Hammack? Wow, that was a, a great summary by Dr. Shields. I, I don't have a ton of new things to say, but I, I will just emphasize that this is a, a very important time in the field for small cell lung cancer because we've begun to see some hints of new treatments that might be beneficial, but we don't understand very well exactly which patients are the most likely to benefit. And so, as Dr. Shields was saying, this is a very important time where um, really expanding our understanding of how these treatments work in our patients is going to be um, really the next big step in uh, advancing the field. And so, um, being knowledgeable uh, about clinical trial options when available, um, asking your doctor, you know, if, if there aren't clinical trials at your center, how can you get involved in research? Um, I, I think those are things that hopefully will, will benefit patients now, but almost certainly will benefit patients in the future. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Hennick. Thank you. And Dr. Swanson? Yeah, well, thanks again uh, for inviting. Um, us all to talk today. Um, so I just wanted to build on what Dr. Hennick had mentioned. So I think that uh, the real growth here is in understanding the really molecular or the, the genetic underpinnings of small cell lung cancer and then pairing that in the future with uh, treatments so that we can specifically target uh, small cell lung cancer and the role that pathology will play in that. So thank you again. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Swanson. And, uh Ms. Fish Segal with the Longevity Foundation. <laughs> yes. Comments. Yes. It, this was a, a great presentation, and again, we are thrilled to be part of this partnership and presenting this to patients. I think the things that I would like to away today are to have hope, to know that you are not alone, and that as a lung cancer. National Advocacy Foundation. We are here to assist you in any way that we can during your journey. So we really hope that you will reach out to us through our website or through um, our helpline at 
3605864. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. And uh, Ms. Ferenz? Absolutely. I'm so glad to have been here today. I think if there's anything that folks listening, that if there's anything that you've heard that you're feeling like you still have questions on or you still have curiosity about, I think leaning into that, leaning into the organizations that we've talked about here, going on websites, asking your medical team so that you know what's happening for you and your body and you don't have to learn everything about this diagnosis or everything about diagnostic technologies if there's someone on your team who can explain how that's going to impact you and how that's going to support you. And it's okay to keep asking those questions until they make sense for you. But we're glad that you were here today. Oh, thank you. I want to thank our speakers. You've really been phenomenal. I want to thank our participants who really, we've done this program before, but actually um, your questions today were really superb and um, and I think our speakers were also, it was a great um, synergy of the speakers and the participants in terms of um, asking great questions and getting really helpful answers. Um, we hope that you um, will take what you've learned today uh, back to your treating healthcare team. Um, we so want you to, um, I know that some of you are able to ask a question, some of you have a question in queue, and some of you are thinking of a question. All of you, go back to your training healthcare team, ask the questions that you asked today with the information that you've learned today um, and feeling more confident about asking your questions. I think Ms. Ren said, and keep asking those questions until you get the answers that you need. That's really important. Um, and most importantly, we don't want any of you to feel that you're alone in coping with uh, small cell lung cancer or any type of cancer. We want you to know that you're part of a community of support both with Longevity Foundation and Cancer Care. And I should mention to all of you that you will be getting a survey monkey evaluation in a couple of days after the program, and that evaluation is an evaluation of the program, but it will also include all the resources we mentioned today, and then some, so you'll have plenty of resources and places to go. But your healthcare team is really, of course, a good place to start. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.